0: To Save the Nation on ADh TV and i 'm David Flint and I have a, a very eminent author with us today Michael Connor and uh, Michael Connor is an historian of some considerable standing in my regard. Michael, welcome to ADH and Save the nation
1: thanks very much David and I think you've got the introduction your introduction's a bit wrong, though. I think I'm the number one failure in the historical profession. <laughs> Not, <laughs> <laughs> alleged, alleged. because, And that really
0: is uh, the trigger of uh, my great interest in you. And that was in 2005. You wrote a book, The Invention of Terranullius, published, I think, by Quadrant. And that... Uh, uh, Maclay, which Maclay, which was, which was uh, Keith Winshuttle's... Uh, company, was it not?
1: That's right, yes. Yes.
0: And uh, that publication uh, was greeted, if you could call it greeted, by the (laughs) the historians, the official historians of this country and the politicians and people like that with outrage, was it not, and dismissed in many ways?
1: Yes, they they weren't very happy, David. I mean, this is the offending book, (laughs) (laughs) you remember? (laughs) And when I published it, it didn't only talk about terra nullius, it also gave a picture of what the historical, the history profession, the academic profession was, was like at the time. And that made them very unhappy because it's, even back then, it was an absolute disaster. And, you know, and, and having this represented in the book, they, they weren't happy people with me.
0: And uh, how, how were the sales? How, how were the bookshops when your
1: book was released? I remember there was a, a Sydney bookshop. Now you've mentioned it, David. There was there was a Sydney bookshop. I think it could have been at Glebe, a Glebe, a well-done shop. Oh yes. And you know how the bookshop <laughs> you know how bookshops they put out reviews to sell books? Their review was put out to kill my book. It told their really it told their buyers how terrible it was and not to buy it. You know? And uh,
0: what what was your theme in the book?
1: Well, the 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 title of the book is the invention of Terra Nullius, which is I, I'd rather misled a lot of people. You know, I could always pick the people who hadn't read the book because Terra Nullius that does that it does exist. It's a real legal term. What I was talking about was the extra meanings that have been added to it that make it rather than a, a legal term. It's an uh, a political term, it's designed to attack Australian sovereignty, the way it is used and the way it is defined in Australia. And that was what I explored in the book.
0: Well, I was uh, delighted by your book and bought it straight away. And uh, I have a copy, it's at my my brother-in-law's place at Barrel and I, I couldn't find it quickly. But I did look up, uh, you, had a, you had a subsequent text which was published online, did you not?
1: That's right. Uh, at the end of, uh, after, after the book came out, I had an appalling year sort of t- <laughs> putting up with the criticism and all the nonsense that happened. And at the end of the, the following year, I sort of sat down and I tried to make sense, make sense of what had happened to me. So I wrote a short text that's called Error Nullius, and <laughs> simply to preserve it, I, I put it on, uh, online uh, with, Am- with Amazon as a Kindle book. It was just to preserve it, so in the future someone can see what you know, what they do to you and how things happen.
0: You even had, did you not, people denying that there were references to Nullius in the Marbo decision?
1: Not, oh well, not the Marbo decision, but I did have um, Anthony Mason. He was interviewed uh, in the Australian about it, and he said the Connor was hopeless, of course and he didn't ha- I didn't have a leg to stand on because there were f- so few references to, to Terra Nullius in the Mabo decision. Well, nobody asked me, and there are over 40 references to it, and they're all, you know, they're all contradictory, they're wrong. It's a, it's a great problem, I think, in, in the Mabo decision. The Mabo decision
0: was essentially about agricultural land in the Torres Strait Islands, wasn't it?
1: It was supposed to be, but mm-hmm. it went off. Can, can I can I tell you the story the, the way I see th- how things have happened? Yes, certainly. Uh, yes, it, it, it was about in, ni- in 19th The terra nullius is a, uh, an, uh, uh, a, a it has a meaning in international law. It simply means an absence of sovereignty. It was used in the in the late nineteenth century and then sort of disappeared. It wasn't wasn't used very much. There were very few references to it. 1975, there was, in the Western Sahara case at the International Court of Justice, there was an advisory opinion asking if the land that was being disputed in Western Sahara, if that had been terra at the time it was uh, colonised. That was picked up by Paul Coe in, in Australia, who was an Aboriginal activist, who, who really deserves credit for, for bringing the wretched term in, you know, into our usage. He brought some cases to the, the courts in the late 70s, about 1979, where he said, well, when Captain Cook came, it wasn't the terra nullius. Well, well, no one had really heard this before. It was, it was quite a new idea. It got thrown out of the courts. And, but the term had arrived in Australia at that stage. And then we switched to 1981. In August 1981, there was a, a, a conference at the James Cook University in Townsville. And the activists who were, who were present decided to mount a legal case in the High Court, and they were going to argue uh, the, the question of land rights. Though so even then, no one knew what what land rights actually meant. It was a, a phrase they were using. And at the conference, they were even saying, well, we, we don't exactly know what it means, but, you know, we, we're going for the land rights. They chose Eddie Marbo, who was... Uh, uh, from the, the Torres Strait Islands, but he lived in Townsville, he worked at James Cook University, and they used him to, to put forward a case. At this conference, which is a really impo- important event in our history, uh, Henry Reynolds gave a paper on Australian history. He didn't mention Terra it, it's quite incredible. It was the lawyers at that conference, a couple of them used the term Nine months after the conference, the, the, the case, the, what became the Mabo case and the, the court cases, uh, was before the high, was going towards the High Court. Uh, it was launched. After that, in 1987, Henry Reynolds produced a new history book called The Law of the Land. And this is quite different. I mean, it's only, what, six, seven years before he hadn't mentioned terra nullius, now he placed it right at the center of, of, our, quest- of, of our settlement history. And it was, ob- it was written for the High Court, and it, and it made its way into the Marbo Judgment. There were several references to it, and it's his understanding of terra nullius that, that guides them. At the time when 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 Reynolds was writing, Terra Nullius was being was around. It was being used by by academics, by activists, and what they usually did was they would start off and say, "Oh, Terra Nullius." It's two Latin words, and they translate it as "no man, no persons, land," uh, or uh, unin, "uninhabited," that nobody owned any property. They were inventing meanings for it because they didn't know the correct legal meaning. And at the time, terra nullius wasn't in any dictionary. It wasn't in the the, the big Oxford, the huge Oxford dictionary. It doesn't get a mention there. It wasn't in any Australian dictionary. So people were freely adding these new meanings onto it. So you could have a conversation between two people and want to be talking about terra nullius meaning unpopulated, want to be using it meaning uh, nobody owned any property and be using it in the correct pro- meaning uh, there was no sovereignty but they would have these different meanings that they were thought they're understanding each other but they're on on different levels
0: would you like in to the, explain uh, to to the viewers what sovereignty is what what, what do you understand as sovereignty being because the british found no <laughs> sovereignty here did they the british found no sovereignty it, it really means organized government, doesn't it, of uh, operating on a territory?
1: You're absolutely right, of course. But I, I, I'm not sure that this is really the conversation we should be having. When I look back at it, I think we've been sold something here, that this, this consideration of sovereignty and all the um, authorities that come into this, we've been pushed by the, by the activists into that direction. I mean, you're not going to find these sorts of considerations when you look at the 18th century documents. I mean, Captain Cook, he he discovered the East Coast and he claimed it on the basis of discovery, as he said. Discovery, you know, there there wasn't a government in Western terms uh, here. He he performed an act of annexation, which meant very little until settlement started Hmm. and things evolved from there. But, but, but the, the, the activists have got us talking about all this legal underpinning of sovereignty, which I don't think it's got much to do with the situation. It, you know, it's, a, it's a bit of a trick question. There was a... And I say, when,
0: there was a uh, oh. There's a reference in Keith Winshuttle's book, The Breakup of Australia, in which you figure, he mentions your work in that book. Oh. And he says, he quotes a, a Victorian government website which said, I'm sure they've taken it down since he published it, Cook arrived in Sydney on the 7th of February, 1788, with the first fleet of convicts. This is Cook, and this is a government website. He arrived with the first fleet of convicts, military, and the British flag to raise in possession for the British crown, claimed the the sovereignty and ownership of the land of the southern continent, which was deemed to be terra nullius. This is a government website telling us that Captain Cook arrived in 1788 and declared the land terra nullius and took it in the name of the British crown.
1: I know it's, it's absolutely appalling. I mean, but it's like this everywhere, David. I mean, in, my book was written in 2005, and I was saying, look, stop, there's, there's a problem here. We, we should consider this. They just steamrolled ahead. You know, I felt I was standing in front of the Titanic saying, look, you know, there's an iceberg, Captain Smith, stop. But nobody took any notice. And it just goes, it's absolute madness. And it just continues. I mean, this is why, of we course, we've got Bruce Pascoe that people are not taking responsibility for correcting the errors that the historians are making. Yes.
0: You uh, you were attacked by eminent lawyers and established historians,
1: were you not? Oh, I was, David. I've got the scars, if you'd like to see, yes. And, and some of them, they, they hadn't bothered reading the book. I was attacked by a by one notable person in the Australian, uh, before the book was in the shops, <laughs> you know. It, it completely took me to pieces. He'd not read it. And I think when Anthony Mason, uh, Sir Anthony Mason, when he was criticizing me, I doubt it. he'd bothered re- reading the book. People instinctively knew that I was wrong. That people, they don't read history, they know the history. You know, you say, oh no, look, look, there's a problem with terra nullius, it actually means that it's got a real meaning, it means this, oh no, they all know better. They know that Cook came in 1788, for example, they they know this for a fact.
0: (laughs) (laughs) A similar thing happened in the Republic debate. The so-called Republicans ran out of reasons. When Al Grasby said that the reason to become a republic was because of unemployment, because the Crown caused unemployment and if we had a republic, there would be no more unemployment Mm -hmm. in Australia. They were running out of reasons. And they fell on the term head of state. Now, head of state, like, like Terranulius, head of state wasn't in the Macquarie Dictionary. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't a term used by anybody except international lawyers and diplomats because it's an international law term. It had nothing to do with the constitution. And yes. the, they decided that the reason we must become a republic is we must have an Australian as head of state, which was wrong legally because the Governor-General was effectively the, well, not effectively, was the head of state. Head of state just meant the person or institutions you hold out as your head of state. Uh, And it had particular reference when they went into the territory of other states because they had immunity. That's all it... That was all the purpose of the whole thing. But they used that and it's now, it's now become the big reason for becoming a republic that we have to have an Australian as head of state. Another example mm. of, uh, of words being used and misused. I think another, another word being misused is gender. I, I think that's to get away from, <laughs> you know, they use that to get away from sex because yeah. our sex, I think, is determined scientifically at our birth and uh, it's impossible uh, to change your sex you can appear if you wish and nobody gives a hang if a man decides to dress as a woman so what it's a, it's a personal matter but they've chosen the word gender and you get ridiculous things like people saying that uh, there are women with penises and there are men who can have babies and these are, are silly uh, things but it, it is i in many ways, I trace this, uh, the exposure of this back to 1984, where Orwell had the Ministry of Truth, which was to, do, to change the meaning of words and to narrow the vocabulary so that it was what the, what the party wanted people to talk about and do it in the yeah. meanings given to it by the party.
1: Absolutely. And they also imprison us in their points of view too, because every time you've got a form to fill in online or whatever and it has gender, I mean I'm like I want to write sex, but I can't change <laughs> I can't change the form. You know, you, you sit there fuming and say that's ridiculous. And of course you can't just leave it blank or anything. You have to put something in. That
0: <laughs> they force you to, to use yes. it. If this you leave term. it if you leave it blank, they'll give you so many pronouns you won't know what to do with them. <laughs> <laughs> I could do with a few pronouns. (laughs) uh, Wasn't there an an occasion when Henry Reynolds said he didn't know of any historian or jurist who had written on the subject of Terra Nullius over the last 20 years? years. Didn't he say something to that effect? I think you you mentioned it in Era Nullius.
1: Sorry, you you, you mean Henry. How does he get away with it, Reynolds? (laughs) Yes. He he was saying that he hadn't read anybody who said that the the first the first fleeters the uh, the original colonists uh, used Terra Nullius. Well, of course, historians all did. They They all thought it really Terra Nullius was a historic term from the 18th century. One of the after I got interested in Terra Nullis and I realised you know, what was going on, I talked about it to a, uh, an academic who's an expert in, in colonial history. I, you know, he, he's genuine. He, he knows everything. You know, he's very good. And I told him that, well, Terra Nullis wasn't used in the 18th century. He literally jumped up from his chair, he ran around, <laughs> had a library, books everywhere. He, he started grabbing books to show me that I was wrong. You know, he pulled out a whole pile of, of, of text and he looked at it and it wasn't there. Next time I saw him, he had spoken to Henry, and Henry would say, well, if, if the term wasn't you, that, that, that was what it was effectively, you know, they, they're cheating. <laughs> you can't get out of it like that. And I, I, warned, I warned against that attitude in my book. I said, look, you know, you must go back to the beginning and start reconsidering what really happened. You, you can't just delete terra nullius which people like uh, Stuart McIntyre, in his Concise History of Australia, it went through various editions. He changed, after my book came out, he pulled it out and and changed it. Uh, And other historians have done the same thing. They've altered, they've they've kept the same ideas instead of going back and doing the work.
0: You've done, uh, obviously, what I would have expected all historians to do, and lawyers too, and that's to go back to the very first reference. And okay. Keith Winshuttle does this too. He, he's a, I, I regard him as a, an excellent historian. And he goes back, and I think you've got to do that. You've got to go back to the original source to find yeah. something and then trace it from there. You can't, you can't assume that what's being said today is, is history. And, but so yeah. many historians now seem to just reflect whatever is the current belief rather than rechecking the sources.
1: Uh, mentioning Keith you know something that's not said about Keith is what a marvellous writer he is. You know, Every one of his, you know, his books that they've read, as soon as they come out, they're so readable. He tells these marvellous stories packed with, with the research he's done. Mm. But it's such accessible history. If he was, if he was a lefty, you know, he would be one of the heroes of our age, but because he's on the other side, because he's on the truth, truthful side, you know, that they, they deride him and knock him and everything, and they're absolutely ignoring what a fine literary stylist he is.
0: You're so right. But I, did, you I suppose you've noticed in the debate about The Voice that your book and Keith's The Breakup of Australia are obviously being read widely in relation to discussions about The Voice. Well, I should hope so. <laughs> but I suspect they're not, are they? People people are not going back to your book. They're not going back to Keith's. And the voice is really relevant to this. What what you discovered, what you found in relation to the misuse of uh that should be very much something which should be teaching us in relation to the debates concerning the voice referendum, should they not?
1: absolutely and what we sh- i think we should also be looking out looking also at he- henry Riddle's other book that he- his book from 1996 which is aboriginal sovereignty and you know when 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 Reynolds wrote the the law of the land in the, in the mid eighties he was there was interest in in land rights and our history and he provided he provided a history which was used in the courts which was used in the universities in the schools he was at the forefront of the whole of, of that which became the Marbo decision Marbo wasn't enough, and in 1996, when when Reynolds published this, he went a step ahead you know the so, if, if I could go back to, to I mentioned that at 1981 conference. At that conference, Reynolds says, he was talking about the, the decision to, to, to try for land rights with Eddie Marbo in the law courts that was, that was going to start up. And he said, yes, it's very much a matter of tactics. Do you ask for the immediate, most immediate and most realisable first? And when you've got that, ask for the other thing. There's a whole process the you know Marbo the land rights was one thing the voice is another step Now they're heading towards obviously towards Aboriginal sovereignty they're just chipping away mm. at us and when, when when his book in 96 came out he'd gone a step too far you know th- th- this wasn't taken up they hadn't done the groundwork they're doing the groundwork now for this this is, this is coming and then in, in this one also you know he's He says, if sovereignty could be divided between the six colonies and the new federal government in the early 20th century, it can be cut again to accommodate emerging ethnic nationalism. Well, isn't ethnic nationalism what we're looking at in The Voice? Yes. It's absolutely disastrous what, what they're doing, but they're doing it step by step. No, who would have thought? When I, when he published this in the late nineties, I was at the university doing a PhD, and I just talked about it to some people, and their attitude was, "Oh, just ignore that. that that's just Henry. You know, he's carrying on. It's really serious. No, the the voice is heading in that direction. He came out too too early with that book.
0: Now... It- your book, is, is it available now? Is it in
1: stock? No, I don't think so, no. You're, and there's uh, very few copies around. There's some in, in public libraries, you might find, or you, even occasionally university libraries. So I think there's one university, I forget which, where they have a whole pile of references to me, of reviews of my book, all saying what, how terrible it is, but they don't actually have a copy of my <laughs> book there. <you> know? <laughs> but
0: uh, ha- have you thought of bringing out a new edition?
1: I hadn't. No, you're the well. You're the first person to take an in. What is it? Eighteen years since the book was published. You're the first person to take an interest in it.
0: Well, (laughs) thank you. It would be worth uh, republishing, don't you think? uh, Perhaps with a. I mean, all you would need would be a a new
1: preface, really. Yes. 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 It it has. It has come back to haunt us. But but all that, David. All the time in in the years since it was published. I mean. it's like <laughs> you, you think you're advancing, but you're, they just go backwards again. It's as though you haven't said anything. You know, they, they never accept, they never, the history never changes. It just seems to get worse and worse. And you're continually fighting over the same thing. You, you know, you, you, you kill it and it pops up again. Yes. And it just goes on and on. Well,
0: what you could do is bring it out again, publish it with error, Nullius, which was your text. <laughs> on amazon yeah. but, but just have a, a a preface which brings it up to date and brings uh, it up to date good idea i think that would be uh something valuable i don't know whether keith would want to publish it but uh, probably yeah. connor court or somebody like that might be interested right. in it if Keith wants <laughs> Yeah, I, I think that I think there could be a market there because this is the time, and it wouldn't require an enormous amount of work. But it's very important <laughs> that this be that this be known, that people know what you've published.
1: And last weekend I went into a, sorry, no, last weekend I went into a, I went into a rather nice bookshop in, in Hobart. You come out utterly depressed at the range of books you have in the bookshops. It's just appalling, you know, the, the complete left-leftist view. I but my books. I buy online. I, I, you, know, you can't. You can't find. There's not an Australian bookshop that has a proper range of books that aren't, you know, wholly left. To go in the shops, it, you've got all the pretty fiction. They could have all be written by artificial intelligence. They're all much the same. And then all the history books and the others. I'm just so leftist point of view. It's utterly depressing.
0: Many years ago, I was uh, about to have one of my books published and I was advised to go and see a a publisher, a significant publisher, and uh, he was interested and read the book. And when I saw him again, he said, well, it's a very good book. I liked it. He said, but uh, I'm not going to publish it. And I said, why? And he said, well, uh, it's a conservative book. It's about conservative things and conservatives don't read books. Only the left read books and uh, I only publish to the left. Now, that's Um, completely untrue because conservatives do read books. It's just that uh, there are not so many conservative books published.
1: Uh, We need a a, a big conservative publishing house, a good conservative publishing house that can get the books into the bookshops. They need need Mm. to be in there competing with these other stuff on the shelves where, where people are shopping. Conservative books are hard to find, yes. They are.
0: Now, I had an experience on a very small scale, similar to yours. That is, the twisting of the truth. And uh, an article appeared in The Australian by Shireen Morris in which she referred to the Commonwealth Franchise Act of 1902, the principal purpose of which was to extend the votes for women which existed in South Australia and Western Australia. And the other politicians generally were in agreement that there should be the extension of the franchise to women. And that came out in the uh, Commonwealth Franchise Act. But there's also another provision in the act which said that uh, indentured laborers, they call them the Aboriginal natives of the Pacific Islands, except New Zealand, Africa and Asia, should not be enrolled to vote. And this wasn't a racist provision, as it might be depicted. This was in the bill, bill by the Barton government. Uh, it wasn't a racist pro- provision. It was part of an attempt to close down the import of what they regarded, what they called, coolie labor. That is to say, bringing in people, paying them very low rates, having them stay in Australia for a number of years, being under very tight control in an indentured position where they guaranteed that they would work by deed and promised that they would leave the country after a certain number of years. Well, uh, there was a wish to stop that and they, it was believed that if they did vote, they would vote as instructed by the people who were engaged in importing coolie labour. So it was not, it wasn't a racist provision, it was a sensible provision. But when it came to passing it through the two houses, because in those days, governments didn't have the control of any house. It was real, it was true Westminster style government and uh, they really depended on the support of those people who were not involved necessarily in the government party. And to get it through, they had to make changes the, the amendments proposed, significantly from the Labor Party, were to add Aboriginal natives of Australia to add Australia to the term of Aboriginal natives right. that they too not vote, and that uh, the Labor Party would be very embarrassed to try and explain that. I think uh, Keith does quite fairly in his book on the White Australia policy, and he says that they they were worried that graziers would use the aboriginal people who came to work for them and when the man came the men came they came with their whole tribe so the graziers looked after the whole tribe and they they feared that they would also get them to register and then tell them how to vote that was the fear of the labor party so i'm i'm trying to give the labor party a, a fair deal in relation to the fact that but- labor labor did introduce this provision and the provision then read that uh, Aboriginal natives of Australia, Africa, Asia, and the Pacific Islands, with the exception of New Zealand, could not be enrolled to vote. But there was a proviso that Shireen Morris didn't mention. The proviso said, uh, subject to Section 41 of the Constitution, Section 41 of the Constitution provided that if you could register to vote, you could acquire the vote. It's anyone who acquires, so it went to the future too. It's been... Some people said oh, I'd only replied in relation to those who, who got in before federation. It applied to anybody in the future, and it says anyone who a- acquires the right to vote in a state could not be prevented by law from voting in a federal election. So there was this proviso there anyway, in the in the bill that uh, the Barton government introduced, and they pointed this out. They said, well, if you, if we do add Aboriginal ladies, they'll be they'll be protected anyway if they can get a, the, the right to vote in the states. And Aborigines could register to vote in every state in the Commonwealth, except that in Queensland and Western Australia, they had to own or lease property worth £100. So that was a, quite a barrier. But there were two, in four states they could register, and in two states, Aboriginal women could vote, which meant that in the referendums for federation, Aboriginal women could vote in two states, whereas white women, in, and in the first election for the Commons, white women in Victoria and Tasmania and New South Wales couldn't vote. It was very interesting that uh, you had the situation where Aboriginal women were allowed to vote, and some did. Now, uh, that wasn't mentioned in Shireen Morris's article. Anybody reading that would think, oh, how terrible. In 1902, we stopped Aborigines from voting. It's completely untrue. Then George Williams from the University of New South Wales published an opinion piece in which he said that Aborigines were banned from voting. <laughs> now, right. th- this was a misrepresentation. I'd written a letter to the Australian about Shireen Morris's. It wasn't published. So I wrote a letter when George Williams' piece came out and uh, said at the bottom, you did not publish my letter in relation to the earlier comment. I assume that you will be publishing this so that people will understand. Well, they did publish it. And it just pointed out that you couldn't just rely on what people were saying in this debate about the voice. Uh, There you had the situation where the Commonwealth, as Keith Winchuttle says, in the uh, that book the the breakup of australia keith Winshuttle said it's clear that the intention of the government was to ensure that aborigines did vote in australia they weren't yeah. taking it away they wanted aborigines to vote they were forced by pressure from labor to add aborigines to this provision but then it was negated by the constitution so you do get this misrepresentation of facts and this." I suspect is happening in relation to the voice.
1: Yes, you mentioned the White Australia policy. My my family was quite interesting. I did started doing genealogical research uh, around the turn of the century and discovered my father had Chinese siblings. You know, and we made contact and whatever. And one of one of his siblings. I mean, these were. These were my father and his his brothers and sisters. They were born around the turn of the century. Well, one of the Chinese brothers, half brothers, was he was adopted by a a family, a Chinese family in Bendigo, and he was taken off to Hong Kong for for education. Well, in the nineteen fifties, this. Chinese man wanted to come back to Australia. And he contacted the authorities here who explained, you know, the white Australia and blah, blah. And he was able to turn around and say, well, that's very interesting, but I'm Australian. I may be Chinese. I may be, you know, Chinese. I was born in Australia. And absolutely right. <laughs> Welcome back home. <laughs> we, ha- we have these assumptions about, about white Australia and other things in our history. We, we automatically think we know all this and we don't. It's, now, historical knowledge is on shaky grounds. Yes. My, uh, my grandfather
0: and my mother came to Australia, a family of four or five. They came to Australia in 1915. My family were from the then Dutch East Indies and they were Eurasians. They didn't publicise it, but they were of a Eurasian origin. And when well, they came to Sydney, they were given the... Given the dictation test in English, which even the children passed with flying honours, and uh, yeah. they they were allowed in uh, on the assumption that uh, they could at least pass the the dictation test. Uh, my yeah. they they my father my grandfather bought a farm at Blacktown or outside of Blacktown, which is now a Sydney suburb, but it was just a town away from Sydney, and. Uh, Because his money wasn't coming in immediately. He had funds in Jakarta, then Batavia. He was waiting on funds, and uh, when he wanted to take his produce to the market, because he was a farmer, he had no way of getting it there. And the the lady next door, he did a deal with the lady next door, and she took him in her sulky, her horse (coughs) and sulky, into the market in Blacktown. She was Aboriginal. She was an Aborigine. It was an Aboriginal family that owned the farm next door. And my mother told me that when she went to the school, the public school in Blacktown, there were several children in the class who were Aborigines. So education existed. Here we had an Aboriginal family owning a farm. And uh, the, the suggestion that there was... Some terrible treatment of the aborigines at this time, certainly, certainly in Blacktown in Sydney, wasn't uh, wasn't accurate.
1: No.
0: But that's just just relying uh, on platitudes. Yes. Mm -hmm. So, are you taking part? Are you involved in the voice debate in Hobart?
1: No, just sitting back in absolute horror. I mean. the, the people like myself who 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 strongly feel uh, strongly against it i mean one 's intimidated are we really going to get out that what happens? we get out and say no, we put a sticker on the car i 'd expect to get the car smashed up or something you know they, <laughs> I, th- I I think there are great, there are serious problems out there of, of getting a a, a no uh, of, of articulating a, a, a no opinion in our society you know we, we, a lot of us, I think, are, are give a react from fear of, of what we would happen if we did come out and express a strong opinion against what the, the left want.
0: I think they're making a terrible mistake, the people who are running the yes case, in being so critical and being abusive to those who are arguing the no yes. case. And I think uh, Noel Pearson has come to the conclusion that perhaps he went over the top. He certainly did go over the top in relation to the way he's been speaking about those who are arguing against him. Uh, so the arguments are very reasonable. There's, there's a wonderful observation by the two founders, or two of the founders of Australia who wrote the book. They wrote a magisterial volume called The Annotated Constitution of Australia. It was Sir John Quick and Sir Robert uh-huh. Garran. Sir John Quick was famous from the Koroa Conference. The Koroa Conference was the worked out the Koroa Plan, which really was the way we federated. Uh, because when the first convention met and they developed the constitution, it was then sent to the six colonial parliaments and the politicians then turned around and wanted to renegotiate everything. They weren't going to get anywhere with it. and. Federation seemed as though it would be a dead letter that it wouldn't get anywhere. And the conference at Korowa, particularly by people living on the borders who desperately wanted Federation, uh, met and they gave all sorts of interesting speeches. But towards the end, Sir John Quick moved a motion and uh, that was that in future, the future convention should be It should be elected rather than nominated. And secondly, that the conclusions of that convention, the draft constitution, be put out for public discussion. But after that public discussion and when they held their final session and came to their final conclusion on the referendum, that should be put direct to the Australian people. It shouldn't go back to the parliaments for discussion. It should be put direct. And that's what they did. Eventually, the premiers agreed to that. It took some time. But in that that final period of the final convention, the final convention was held in uh, 1898. And the extraordinary thing was that uh, referendums were held. New South Wales held out and didn't agree to the Constitution to the level at which the Constitutional Act required. And they, ha- they had to do a bit more uh, changes, a few more changes of the draft. And a second referendum was held in New South Wales. The other referendums in the other states. And uh, it was then had to be taken to London for approval by the British Parliament. That process from the second convention to getting it through the British Parliament took three and a half years. And as you know, you can't build a dam now in three and a half <laughs> years. We, sure. couldn't, we couldn't lay a, a tram track down in George Street, Sydney in that time. The new tram track that went down George Street took much longer than that. This was an extraordinary thing that was done in this country, and it was done by people who, who uh, weren't swayed by the fictions that we have today when we
1: come to constitutional issues. you talk about the fictions. Henry Reynolds, again, it 2021, he produced truth-telling in Australian history. He produced a new lie after Terra Nullius, after getting getting a, sending us off on the wrong direction with that. One of the major points in this new book is that Jeremy Bentham, in 1802, was arguing for a treaty with the Aboriginal people. And Bentham has said that the flaw, the not having a treaty, the flaw is an incurable curable one. The flaw is an incurable one. Reynolds has been saying this since 2018. It's been taken up by other writers, other people he's influenced. It's one of the backbones of this book. Bentham didn't say it. Bentham was talking about an entirely different subject. Reynolds has got this error wrong again. And it's, he's propagating this new one, you know, the, as support for a treaty. Another Reynolds error.
0: This is based on the proposition that the Aboriginal people had sovereignty and the, the only way in which another nation could acquire that sovereignty was by way of a treaty. All of this is fictional, is it not?
1: Oh, absolutely. But Bentham was talking about uh, the, the, the establishment of the college, nothing to do with Aborigines at all. He doesn't even mention them. It, it, it's madness, but it, it's influencing other writers. It goes out into the mainstream.
0: And what is very clear from any examination of the history of New South Wales and of Australia is that uh, the British did reach out as instructed, it was in the royal instructions that they should uh, speak to the native people, but there was nobody to negotiate with. If you wanted to have a treaty, there was nobody to negotiate with, unlike the situation, say, in New Zealand, where there was a war and uh, other, yeah. other parts of the world which became parts of the British Empire. There was no sovereignty in Australia and you compare that to the situation, say, in India, where they entered into treaties with the uh, with the, the local maharajas and so on, and uh, yes. that. The, and of course, there was also acquisition by conquest. Conquest was always possible for a foreign power, or a European power, to take other territory. That was always accepted no. as part of uh, uh, public international law of the time.
1: Yeah, and, and but arrangements with the aboriginals didn't work. I mean, Governor King, at one time, I think in the Hawkesbury, there were the, the settlers were moving in, and the Aborigines came and saw King and spoke to him and said, you know, they're taking over lands we need for for hunter-gathering or whatever, and and King saw the reasonable reasonable nature of their argument. He he stopped the the settlement in that in that area. And you know he's thinking that would bring peace to between the the settlers and the Aboriginals, but it didn't work because the Aboriginals continued raiding the white people because they were after the goods that the the whites carried. You know even even setting aside land for them, it didn't work on on the Aboriginal side. They just walked off and they wanted to, they they wanted the good things of the of settler society.
0: And they weren't, at that stage, attuned to being farmers, notwithstanding what Mr Pascoe says.
1: Oh, that's complete and utter nonsense. How anyone can believe that rubbish, you know, all they have to do is look at the explorer's text he's misrepresenting and you, and you see the, the errors he... It's appalling stuff what he's done, it's a complete hoax. Was he not
0: given professorial status in one of our universities? <laughs>
1: Oh my god yes I think that was the but, University of Melbourne was it not I was yes but that, that that he that Pascoe himself is just not interested in, in in Buckley Buckley's account of living with the aboriginals he mentions it once in his book and it's actually the reference he's using is from an article in the age newspaper which he gets wrong he hasn't even bothered to read Buckley who actually lived <laughs> with the aboriginals, and it's such a, <laughs> a, a valid, a, an important source for, for that life. Yes.
0: Andrew Bolt would have passed this by the defamation lawyers of his his uh, broadcasting station, but does he not say that uh, that Pascoe is not an aboriginal person?
1: Oh, he, he's obviously not. If you look at uh, Jan Holland's uh, genealogical research, there's absolutely, it's absolutely clear he's got, he's got no aboriginal blood at all. If you look at the documents, you know, it's completely unjustified. And his parents, his mother, didn't, never claimed it. His father never claimed it.
0: One of the uh, problems in the referendum is the attitude of young people because uh, much of education in Australia has been converted, has it not, into indoctrination. And uh, the teaching in the schools for example, on questions relating to the indigenous people seems to be more propaganda than, if I may use the words,
1: truth-telling. David, the the younger generation aren't being educated, they're being groomed, you know, that's that's what it is.
0: Notwithstanding the increased amount of money which was put into education, do you remember the advertisements, I don't give a gonski? And the the Gonski scheme or idea was that if you put more money into education, you'd conquer the problems in education which were being exposed by international comparisons. Through the the, uh, assessment of students through tests and so on, it was found that the Australian students were falling significantly behind those of many other countries, including Asian countries, poorer Asian countries than Australia, mm-hmm. but the standard of education was particularly poor in Australia, not only in relation to history, but in relation to literacy and numeracy. And isn't this but, uh, part uh, of the solute, problem?
1: It, yes, but it's it's too. Isn't it too late? We've we've gone too far to recover. But the the culture wasn't passed on. from the from the eighties onwards. The 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 problems go way back now. To to recover you haven't got the teachers who are open minded and are knowledgeable or interested. <laughs> They're just grooming the kids in the in the left think, the established left think and the idiocy of our times. One of the... when you look at the things you were talking before about gender. Things, the the trans issues I mean who could imagine just a few years ago that we couldn 't even say who is a woman and who who is a man things we, you, you, you take for absolute nonsense uh, we've worked on and sooner or later the left get their way and it, it takes over our societies
0: part of the part of that phenomenon seems to be that some new theory is dreamt up, particularly in american universities and well, it seems to be part of a, and I don't wish to be par- seem paranoid, but it seems to be part of a plan to undermine Western civilization. And it seems to come from the United States now. It used to come from France and to an extent Germany, but certainly the French seem to produce this in their universities. It seems to now be concentrated in America. So we have this concept of uh, transgender which has emerged recently, and although we're called upon to observe the science, follow the science in relation to climate, it seems that when it comes to sexual issues, we must ignore the science, and we must accept propositions like that, uh, for example, that uh, uh, women can have penises and men can bear children and... uh, and uh, men can menstruate, these quite ridiculous propositions are openly supported. You hear people claiming that it is a fact, for example, that uh, not only women menstruate. In fact, I think uh, I heard on the radio uh, a radical woman saying, well, it's a fact that the predominance, the predominant number of people who menstruate are women. Yes, I accept that. So the predominant number menstruate, but apparently there are men yeah. who also menstruate. These these ridiculous propositions are just accepted, it seems, by some people.
1: Yes, yeah. and, be- and below it all, the, 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 the violence that's coming. You've got you've got these layers of, of woke madness, and then you've got the antifas, and in France the black blocs. You've got these. Violence is supporting these crazy ideas It's happened in America around in america it's, it's happening in France at the present the, the you know the protests are just masking the fact that there's a youth revolution going on of, of, of absolute violence and possibly the voice if if the if the proponents of the voice don't get their way you know is there going to be violence in the streets if they get their way will there also be violence in the street but there seems to be an underlying the way they're treating people who 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 think no the way they're demonizing the opposition is is an opening towards youth violence i would think
0: there is i think there is a saving grace and that is that there is i think an innate common sense in people particularly when they leave the education system which unfortunately they leave much later now than they used to when they leave the education system and go into Life, particularly when they're working outside of the government sectors, I think there is a a tendency to come down to earth, and there's enormous common sense. For example, I think you find enormous common sense in the sort of people who once would have been thought of as traditional Labour voters, and many still are, but the tradesmen and their wives quite often have much more common sense. Farmers, for example, you find that these people have common sense. And I think we see this emerging in the polling, the good polling, because some polling is questionable, but in the good polling in relation to, to the voice. And uh, I was very interested in the Morgan poll, for example, which has been followed by a news poll. And that is, and the Morgan poll did show it on a statewide basis. And it showed that in no state... Was there a majority of support for the voice? Now that 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 uh, suggests a copy of the 1999 Republic referendum,
1: when we won in every state. Uh, and but there is a long time to go, when, you know, and they will be controlling the what's heard and what's read. Uh, it'll be their advertisements we see on the television. It'll be their uh, words that are being. That they'll be setting up the tables in the streets and arguing for the voice.
0: I think you're right. Uh, when, uh, when the 1999 referendum was held, and John Howard, who didn't speak often on it, only spoke at the beginning and the end, was against the form of republic, which we called a politician's republic, mainly because it took away some of the significant checks and balances on the politicians. When, uh, when he was actually running that referendum, it was gold-plated honesty and fairness. Both sides in the process were treated absolutely equally and fairly, to the extent that even the government grant, which he introduced, went in equal amounts to both sides. It was a very fair process. The fact was that the Republicans had vastly more funds than the constitutional monarchists in that process, but it was a very fair treatment. In this case, the government has been most underhand. Uh, they've behaved appallingly. They even wanted to abolish what was a gem created by an earlier Labour government. That is the yes, no booklet. That was created by mm. a Labour government. And it's been yeah. a wonderful institution to have it, to have the arguments concentrated in one place, in one booklet that you could read, easily to see the major arguments side by side. But he was going to, they were going to abolish that. And since then, they have misbehaved appallingly. For example, the Yes case has received approval for tax deductibility so that if corporations give $2 million to them, uh, they get a very big tax deduction for that. And people who are at the top of the scale The income tax scale get a very big deduction for that. And similarly, the neutral advertising, that is the information advertising, which John Howard was meticulous in ensuring that it was neutral information advertising in the Republic referendum, the advertising which we see as information advertising, which is constantly on television, is really yes case advertising. The government mm. is really behaving in a very underhand way in the voice referendum, but it, it's surprising that notwithstanding all this, notwithstanding all the money, the polls are going against the government. Yeah. Dick McGarvey, who was... Um, he was... Um, the, the governor of Victoria was... a uh, a judge on the Labour side uh, in the sense that when he was uh, out of uh, the judicial position he was a Labour man he came up with a model at the referendum a Republican model but he always said something which I think is very true Australians are very wise constitutional people and they're very quick to smell a rat and I think even even those uh those some of those in the educational system, we have people here, for example, who students working here, who are wonderful in the their understanding of the uh, constitution. My producer, for example, uh, was one of the very first to, when they banned you saying that it was a third chamber, the voice was a third chamber, came up with the fourth arm of government and Charlie. <laughs> did that uh, of his own volition. He didn't know that it may have been used on other occasions. This is wonderful, and I think there are wonderful people among the young who see through what is going on.
1: But when I, when I went to Woolworths last week, they were playing advertisements. Woolworths supports the voice. <laughs> you know, as, you, as you're getting your cornflakes, you know, that they're, they're working on it.
0: <laughs> it's even so, suggested that uh, Qantas may have that on the side of their planes. <laughs> Uh-huh. They ought to. They ought to look at the. Let, there was a letter in the, in the Financial Review, yesterday. I think, put some uh, people who don't travel often. They're living on their retirement savings, and they go away every four years, and they travelled by, on business class. And they, they set out in great detail the appalling status of business class on, on Mr. Joyce's planes. So he better be careful uh, about what he says. Unfortunately, we've reached the time where there is no much, there's certainly not much further time. Do you have anything else you would like to add to the viewers uh, before we close, Michael?
1: Uh, Well, one of my other causes was the corruption at the University of Newcastle. In the massacre map, I wrote some articles about the terrible massacre maps put out by Lyndall Ryan, and I exposed the the plagiarism in the the maps. Nothing ever happened. I complained to the university. There was a six-month investigation. At the end of the investigation, they refused to tell me what had happened, they refused to tell me what the result was, and they supported Linda Ryan. Plagiarism in the universities. I mean, this is appalling. That's another story. You've published that on the Quadrant uh, website? In the Quadrant magazine, I've done quad- two or three. I've done three. I've done a number of articles about about the appalling massacre maps, and um, uh, gone into detail on what the, of the plagiarism and what, what has happened there.
0: Well, you'll have to yeah. put that in the book the republication, yeah. the second edition. And if Keith is not Dead. able to do it, you should do it through Connor Court, in my humble opinion. Right. I think it's a very okay, valuable resource. You. And thank you, thank you so very much, much you. for the time you've given. And uh, uh, and you've been a very marvellous guest. And the book is The Invention of Terra Nullius. And you may find it in book. What Booktopia. <laughs> or, it's a wonderful book. I've uh. read it. And I was absolutely oh, fascinated to read it. And Thank you. Well, this is... Uh, thank you, Dave. Thank you. Thank you so much. This is Save the Nation on ADH-TV. I'm David Flint. And until next time. Thank you.